Equipping today's college students to make their four years count for eternity. This is the Campus Outreach Podcast. So like Luke said, my name is Stuart Gunner. I'm on staff here with Campus Outreach. If I've not gotten a chance to meet you yet, I would love to do so. But throughout this semester with Campus Outreach, we're going to be walking through the book of Colossians. And so if you have uh, your Bible with you, I mean, if not, it will be on the screen behind me. We'll be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And these verses read, He is, meaning Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So, growing up in school, or maybe even now that you're in college, I'm sure that you've asked this question before What does this matter? This subject that I'm learning right now will mean nothing for my life. Why do I need to sit here and learn this? Right, whether it's a writing 101 class when you're a finance major, or maybe you're in high school and you're having to learn things about the Pythagorean theorem and how to find the circumference of a circle, or maybe even how to write in cursive. I'm sure you look back now and just think, that was pointless. I cannot believe the pressure I was under and the time that I took to learn things that are now meaningless for my life. I'm sure that there's some of you here tonight that, like me, even after all the time you've spent studying these things, could not tell anybody here how to find the circumference of a circle. However, this text in Colossians 1 is the exact opposite of that. Nothing about this text is meaningless. In it, what we find is a breathtaking overview of what it means that Jesus Christ has existed for all eternity. We read that he is the image of an invisible God. That he is the firstborn over all creation. That everything in the cosmos was created by, through, and for him. That he is holding together every molecule, every atom in the entire universe. And yet he's reconciling all things to himself as we speak. Guys, I think if we can grasp just a basic understanding of what Paul is writing here to the church in Colossae that I actually think you can leave here tonight wanting to learn and study more rather than seeing this as just another meaningless lecture that you hope to forget by tomorrow. 
Since Jesus Christ, as the creator of the universe and the image of the invisible God, has offered a way of reconciliation to you, you should see him as the only thing that's worth worshiping. So over the course of the next few minutes, I hope you see how great, how majestic, how wonderful Jesus Christ is. And I hope you leave here wrestling with what that means for you. And we'll look at this simply in two points. First, that Jesus is over all creation. And second, that Jesus reconciles his creation. So our first point, Jesus is over all creation. So Paul, who is the author of this letter that we're reading, begins this section by listing off numerous attributes of Jesus Christ. And typically in our minds, whenever we see a running list of things that all relate to each other, we typically just speed through them, right? If you've ever been reading in your Bible a genealogy, you're like, man, I just want to get through this to get to something that really matters. Or think about every time you sign up on a website for a new subscription and you have to fill out the term, you have to click, yes, I read the terms and agreement, right? And really that just means you scroll down, click it, and then get on with it so that way you can enjoy whatever the thing you just purchased is, You assume that whenever you're doing these things, that all the details that are there you already know, and that they're not important. So you just speed on through. But here Paul's trying to make a point about something. The church in Colossae that Paul is writing to is having some issues in understanding who God is. There's one group that very likely was being influenced by some people from the outside and were starting to practice all this magic and philosophy and thinking that by mastering these things and knowing about these things, they would be counted right with God. Then also in this church, you have this other section that believes that if they just follow all the Jewish customs that their ancestors did, if they just follow the law perfectly, if they just dot their I's and cross their T's, that God will approve of them. Paul is writing here to show them that it's the exact opposite of that. He's writing to show that the power and dominion that Christ has over all things, because he is the creator and sustainer of the universe, is the only way that one can be counted right with God. And Paul fleshes this out in several ways. First, Paul establishes that Jesus is over all of creation because he is the image of the invisible God, And that all of the fullness of God is found in Christ. Now, you may have heard before that man is made in the image of God, right? And that's true. And what that means is that humans have the ability to love, to to reason, to show each other grace, to comfort, and so on. Because being made in the image of God for humans means that we can reflect his character. But that's not the point Paul's making here. What Paul is saying is that if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know how God would react in certain situations, how God would treat certain people, or how would God navigate through a really tough situation, look no further than Christ. Because all of the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in him. And Paul can say this with confidence because Jesus is, in fact, God. Paul writes elsewhere in uh, the letter of Philippians that God humbled himself by taking on the form of man in the person of Jesus. 
Everything that God desires for you to know about himself is found in Jesus Christ. Second, Paul places Jesus above all of creation since everything is created by, through, and for him. In verse 16, Paul is placing Jesus as the highest being. He is the one who created. He is the one who everything was created through. And he is the one who everything was created for. So take note of this. If Jesus created all things, heaven, earth, angels, the universe, rulers, kings, us, what does that entail? What does that matter? Well, for one, it means that he rules over them. And if everything about us is placed in subjection to Christ, then that should make it easier for us to find purpose in our lives. I think so many of us today struggle with some sort of emptiness that we feel. The things that we do that we were so certain would bring us happiness have failed us. They're just not fulfilling us the way that we thought they would and the way that these things promised us that they would. For some of you, you figure this out pretty quickly. Right? You thought, man, if I can just get out from underneath my parents' house, if I can just get to Ole Miss and experience some freedom for once in my life, then satisfaction will happen. Then I will finally be fulfilled. And sure, for, for a while, I'm sure it did. Right? You're getting to hang out with friends and you're living in the dorms and you could just go eat whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, because it was already paid for by your parents. But then you start to realize that it wasn't really all that it was cracked up to be. And you begin to think that, man, that there must be something more to life than this. Others of you thought that once I get to Ole Miss and I finally get to start going to the Grove on my own, getting to go to Vaught Hemingway, in the spring I get to go to Swayze and the Pavilion. And man, once I get to be a part of this Greek house and I start to get, in, get involved in all these things and in just living the classic college life, then I'll have purpose. Then I'll have fulfillment. Then I will finally be everything I was meant to be. But after a few semesters, for some of you, maybe even a few weeks, it left you feeling less fulfilled than you even were before. This could be so true for many of us, whether it be involvement on campus or grades or that ideal relationship or popularity within a friend group. Whatever it may be, you may be feeling empty in this life because you do not realize who you were created for. Christ created all things to find their purpose in him. And if we are not looking to Christ, the creator of all things, to find our purpose in life, everything else that you go to to fill that void will be as temporary as a band-aid on a bursted pipe. Thirdly, Paul illustrates Christ's rule over all things by confirming his eternal existence. In verses 15, 17, and 18, Paul writes that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, that he is before all things, that he is the beginning, and that he is preeminent. We've already seen that Christ created all things, so therefore he must rule over them. 
But have you thought about it, what another implication of this is? It means that Christ was not created. He has existed from eternity past. And that's something it's probably hard to wrap your mind around. But before the heavenly realms, and before the angels, and before the valleys and the rivers and mountains, before the stars and the planets, Christ was. Christ is the foundation of all things, and in him, every single atom and every single molecule that he created finds its purpose in him and is being held together by him. There's never been a time when Christ was not ruling over creation. We may have this misconception in our mind that Christ didn't exist until he took on the form of Jesus, until he took on the human body. But that is not the case. As the Son of God, Christ has been forever, for he is co-existent and co-eternal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. There's never been a time when he has not been. And guys, here's, here's what I'm hoping you're seeing. Is that God is really big. He's extremely powerful and magnificent. And you don't have to have all of these things that we've talked about ironed out. You don't have to be able to leave here and go write a paper on this. But I do hope that your scope of who God is has expanded massively. And that you see how overwhelmingly immense the creator and sustainer of the universe is. But while we read this text at the beginning, did you notice a key word that Paul uses twice? He uses this word, reconcile. And if you reconcile something, what do you do? Well, you're bringing it back together. But something only has to be brought together or reconciled if it has first been what? Broken. So for the creator to reconcile all things to himself by his death, something must have had to have happened to break the relationship between the creator and his creation. And this brings us to our second point. Jesus reconciles his creation. So the first book of the Bible, specifically Genesis chapter 3, highlights what mankind did to break its relationship with God and find itself in all of creation in need of reconciliation. And so we don't, we don't have the time to sit and, and look at this verse and these chapters and details and, and go through them. If that's something you're interested in doing, a CEO staff or student leader would love to sit down with you this week and do that. But tonight, all you need to know is that God and man lived in perfect harmony together until man decided that God wasn't enough anymore and rebelled against him. And you may be sitting here thinking like, well, what does that have to do with me? I wasn't there. I wouldn't have acted the same way that they did. You should see how much better I act than than the people around me, than the people in my classes or my pledge class. I'm not even close to the worst one in my friend group, so I know I'd never rebel against God like that. But here's the problem with that line of thinking. We cannot base how good we are by comparing ourselves to our classmates, to our teammates, to our roommates, to our friends. Because if that were the case, we would just surround ourselves with the worst of the worst. That way we could just feel as good about ourselves as possible. Instead, we have to compare ourselves to a steady, loving, creating, holy, faithful, and merciful God. 
And when we compare ourselves to him, we should see how we fall short. And while we may not have some handcrafted idols back in our dorm rooms or back in the fraternity house, we sure do have other things that we've made a lot like idols. We worship our popularity. We worship our figures. We worship how good of a person we are. We worship our resumes. And because of those things, this is how Paul is able to say this in verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And Paul's able to say this and apply it to the people in Colossae in around 60 AD. And apply it to us here in Parish H. Chapel in 2024 in the exact same way. We discussed earlier how Christ is where fulfillment and satisfaction are found. So if that's the case, what must alienation from him mean? It brings total separation from the creator of the universe. And if we are alienated from our true source of life, how can we ever expect to live this life with meaning and purpose? For we have separated ourselves from him. And this is where the concept of reconciliation should hit home for us. Look at verse 20. Christ is to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. Then in verse 22, he, being Christ, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So here we have the creator God who is sinned against by his own creation, reconciling and redeeming the very ones who cast him aside. But did you notice how he did this? He didn't reconcile man by just standing back and waving his fingers and having it magically happen. He didn't reconcile man by looking at creation and seeing what had happened and said, you know what, it's just time for me to go back to the drawing board. This is a lost cause. I'm just going to restart. Instead, he entered into his creation. God took on flesh and lived amongst man as he did in the early chapters of human existence. But this time he came with the purpose to save them. And that's what he did. Jesus lived a life that was perfect. He never had an impure thought, never had an impure motive. He never lashed out in sinful aggression when when he was tired or angry. He never gossiped about a friend as soon as they got up from the table. And yet he was crucified. The sinless God-man willingly went to the cross for crimes he did not commit. And there his blood was poured out. But here we have to ask ourselves two questions. Why and what? Why did Jesus go to the cross? And what did it accomplish? I hope you're asking yourself those questions. Why would the creator of the universe enter into a human body and suffer and bleed and die? Have you ever thought about that? Why would he do that? Was well, because he loves his creation. He loves his people. And he wants to reconcile you to himself and to live with you forever. And what the cross accomplished was your salvation if you trust in him. 
What the cross was, was Jesus taking on the punishment for your sin. And in turn, he gave you his spotless record. So that like what Paul says in verse 22, you can be presented as holy and blameless and above reproach. You see, for those who trust in Christ, your sins are wiped away before God. And this idea of reconciliation should blow our minds. Thomas Edison apparently understood this idea of reconciliation when he and his staff were creating the incandescent light bulb. Uh, this was a process that would take hundreds of hours to just manufacture one single bulb. And one day, after finishing a bulb, Thomas Edison takes it and he hands it to a young errand boy. And he says, hey, can you take this upstairs to the testing room just to make sure it works? We worked on this for a while, just want to make sure that we didn't do anything wrong. And as the boy takes the bulb and, and he turns and he starts running up the stairs, he misses a step. And he stumbles, and and the light bulb breaks on the stairs. But instead of rebuking the boy, Edison reassured him and then turned to his staff and said, let's start working on another bulb. And when it was completed several weeks later, Edison demonstrated the reality of his forgiveness in the most powerful way possible. He walked over to the same boy, handed him the bulb, And said, please, take this up to the testing room. Imagine how that boy must have felt. He knew that he didn't deserve to be trusted with this responsibility again. And yet here it was, being offered to him as though it had never happened. Nothing could have restored this boy to the team more clearly, more quickly, or more fully. Guys, we're a lot like this young boy. We don't deserve a second chance. We've blown it. We should be thrown out and discarded. But that's not what God did. Instead, he had mercy on us and offered us the most wonderful way of reconciliation through his son. And for us, nothing can restore us to God more clearly, more quickly, and more fully than by Christ making peace for us by his blood on the cross. And guys, this truth actually enables you to live a life to the glory of the creator of the universe. And if Christ has created all things for himself, then by trusting and following him, we actually begin to operate as we were designed to. Could you imagine when school ends in May, you hopping on a riding lawnmower and trying to make it back home? Or could you imagine taking a Stanley Cup And instead of using it for for hydration and water, use it as a pencil holder. And if we are trying to live a life where we act as the creator of the universe that holds all things together, of course we're not going to do it well. And it's no wonder that so many of us have this feeling of emptiness in us because we're not living as we're designed to. Having an understanding of who God is and what he's done for you will prove to be the most useful, practical, fulfilling, intellectually engaging subject that you could ever embark on. Opposite of the Pythagorean theorem, opposite of the circumference of a circle, knowing the creator of the universe will always prove to be beneficial and practical for your life. 
There will never be a day where this is useless information. Do you know what the best part about it is? If, you're, if you've trusted in Christ, you never have to worry about failing the exam. Because if you've placed your faith in him, and if you truly turn to him, and have him as the Lord of your life, he has already accomplished everything for you on your behalf. Amen. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, maker of heaven and earth, Father, would we, would we worship you? Lord, would we see you um, as you are, as the creator of the universe who loves us so much that you entered back into your creation that rebelled against you, that wanted nothing to do with you, that turned their back on you, and you sent your son to die in our place and to resurrect as the firstborn from the dead so that way we may have eternal life. Father, we praise you and we thank you. And it's in Christ's powerful name that we pray. Amen.